Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm usually your host, Neil McRobert, but this week it's a Christmas special flip reversal. Yeah, I'm the person being interviewed. Cue pause. Right, for those of you still listening, (laughs) thanks. This startling act of hubris was prompted by, well, a few people on social media who suggested that they'd like to hear me answering some questions. And with the self-importance that can only be found in the early middle-aged male podcaster, I called Josh Malaman and Rachel Harrison, and they, for reasons best known to themselves, jumped at the chance to ask me a few things. We talk about my childhood fears, my relationship with running, my experience of farming llamas, and Rachel asks an it-related question I've never been asked before, plenty of book questions, plenty of pulling the veil back on podcasting. What we find out is that when it comes to talking about myself, I'm simultaneously inarticulate as hell and also won't shut up. (laughs) But I do hope you like this peek behind the curtain. This is almost certainly a one-off and it's Christmas, so indulge me and come with me to an untidy room in an old house in the English countryside. Let me show you where this sausage is made. Let's talk scared. Well, Josh and Rachel, welcome back to Talking Scared. Thank you for having us. This time we have you. So (laughs) you should be thanking us for for having you. And so you're welcome. You're very welcome. Yeah, that's that's weird. Let's basically two of my favorite people. It's delightful to have you both here for this supremely self-aggrandizing hour of podcasting. Um, Before we get to me, how are you both? Good. A little little uh, overwhelmed. Working on a new book. Working on projects uh, tangential to that book, and and you know the the normal juggling act, which I've I dreamed of for years and asked for for years, and here we are juggling and. So good. How about you, Rachel? I'm good. Just wrapping up. Well, hopefully wrapping up edits on my fourth book. I know Josh is like, <laughs> I don't know how many novels Josh is on my little fourth book, but wrapping it up. And uh, that's about it now. Thinking about the next project. That's super exciting. Congrats. Thank you. Yeah. Have you two met previously or do I have the, the honor of bringing you together for the occasion? This is the first time. You have the honor. Yeah. 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 Oh, how nice. How do, who could possibly have thought that would happen, that I would be the nexus of greatness when I first started this? I should explain for listeners, the reason I sound more than usually awkward is because I've somehow managed to orchestrate a situation in which two famous horror writers spend an hour interviewing me, a distinctly unfamous man with half an unfinished book to his name. I worry that is the sound of a million listeners hitting next episode on their devices. Like the sheer hubris of the man. <laughs> You're so self-deprecating. It's almost like, are you British? <laughs> At times it becomes a real impairment. Yeah. You know, you know what's funny about that is, Rachel, you're so right. Like to me, I never for a second thought this was like self-indulgent. I'm like, oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. If I if I had a podcast, I'd talk about myself all the time. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, anyone who knows me will be rolling mm-hmm. their eyes because because literally no one likes talking about themselves more than me. I'm I'm dreadful for it. But 
but this is public and this feels cocky even for me. But who knows? People might like it and it fills a week without me having to speed read a book. Um, so I don't really know what else to say. We haven't planned this or scripted it. I've, I've got no idea, I, no idea what you guys want to ask me. So I will just awkwardly hand over the reins and, yeah, well, take it away, guys, I suppose. Ask away. Well, most importantly, are Josh and I your favorite guests of all time? Oh. I'm kidding. You don't have to answer that. Um, I. It's interesting that you say you love to talk about yourself because I listen to the podcast regularly and there's still – I feel like I don't know a lot about you. So <laughs> I feel like – we should start at the beginning. And I want to know, one, how you would describe your childhood. And when is the first time you remember being scared? Oh, that's a cool question. God, this is unnerving. Um, so, right, my child. So I had the, like a really, really happy childhood. Like, my parents are great. I talk about my dad a lot. My mom doesn't get enough credit, really. My, so... My mom was a psychiatric nurse for my entire life. Um, she worked in proper kind of old school Victorian asylums that had never been changed since, you know, bedlam and stuff like that. She has some great, great ghost stories. Uh, but she's like just, she has absolutely no time for anything speculative. You could almost, you could say she has no imagination. She does. She just doesn't really like anything that isn't in the real. Um but she has got quite a dark sense of humor and, and I grew up around kind of mental health talk and things like that. So that probably plays a part. Uh, my dad is an absolute space cadet. Um, my dad's like 20 years older than my mum, And he is, uh, this sounds like one of these cheesy things. My dad is my best friend in the world, right? He's 86 now. And you would think he was like in his fifties. He's, he's like so switched on, like so progressive and like, that always impresses me when people who are, you know, have no real right to be progressive are. Sorry, I'm getting off topic. Basically, they're really cool parents. And I had a really happy childhood, but I had a, I had a childhood that was kind of riven by anxiety and well, I suppose what you call mental health stuff now, but it didn't feel like that. It was just a lot of anxiety and a lot of fears and, and stuff. Um, but the, the, the mix of them two, my mum being trained as a psychic nurse and my dad just being a really nice guy who was never, ever macho, and I could cry in front of them and all that. It it kept me like balanced. Um, and I grew up in a tiny little village, not about about ten miles from where I live now, which is as close to like the nineteen fifties in the present day that you can get. It's 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 so backwards. It's so small and parochial, and I couldn't wait to escape. But I I do have quite fond memories of it, and it is inspiring some of the stories I'm writing. Um, and I was insanely close to my grandparents all the way through my adolescence till till they died um so yeah really 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 happy um but in terms of my first fear it's really weird you ask that because i was talking about this just yesterday and if i hadn't been i'd have been stumped for an answer my first memory of being scared is when i was three years old and there is a carnival well there, there was like a an annual carnival kind of fate sort of procession with big floats and trucks with dancers on them and stuff and it used to go through the village it was a bit of a kind of folkloric sort of thing and it went past my house and I remember being like three and sitting on the front step and there was a guy in a full gorilla suit who came up to me to kind of well he was trying to be kind he was trying to entertain the kids and I 
freaked out. I just lost my mind. And I was, I, I know I was three because we moved house when I was just about to turn four, but I have a really, really like vivid memory of that. Really, were you, were you able to see like the the fit, like the man in the suit? You know what I mean? Like the eyes in the mask. Were you able to see that? No, no. Or you, in you my head, it was... it was the most authentic gorilla suit of all time. In my head, it moved like a gorilla. You know, it just scared the life out of me. And I'm convinced that kicked off some kind of primal process that I've never quite got over. Because I still love monsters. And I think it all comes from that. But the other thing, the other like really early fear that I had is I remember I was terrified terrified of the entire concept of freddy krueger um because i saw that film way too young but even before i saw it like older brothers of friends were talking about it and i remember it just got in my head and it's never really left to be honest if i see robert england in full makeup i still get a bit of a pavlovian response i feel like a i feel like a drop of adrenaline hit my stomach um even now i mean i, I can watch it now but yeah that that is probably the most kind of totemic terror of my childhood freddy krueger oh jesus christ that's one, yeah. of the, that's one of the most interesting things about like fear right because like you now you know if you had heard of freddy for the first time now you probably mm. wouldn't have you wouldn't have that exact reaction and but you not, nothing can necessarily dispel that association like you feel that same like pit that you're talking about that same like if you're alone in the house like it's still going to scare you even though it's explained now even yeah. though it's this actor now that there's something so thrilling about horror in that way and especially like your first fears well the thing that i find mad is that i could meet robert england right? i mean i've actually written to him to ask him to come on the show he hasn't got back to me yet if you're listening robert come and say hello um but i wrote to him i reckon i could speak to him and I still don't think it would make me any less scared of the character. Right. That's that 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 psychologically is so fun. Yeah. Uh, I'll ask you. And I guess Rachel, we, you and I can keep going back and forth. Also, Rachel, you have a really good um, podcast voice, by the way. Um, Aw, thanks. Yeah. It's when you started, I was like, wait a minute. Does this the show always do this? <laughs> um, okay. So we can jump around somewhat. Um, I have a question. Like, do you? You're always talking with what I consider to be artists. You know, a lot of writers don't consider themselves to be artists, but I definitely do. Do you consider yourself one or a, or a podcast in general a work of art or that kind of thing? Do you see this whole endeavor of yours as an artistic one? Do you see yourself as an artist? How do you view, what lens in that way do you view yourself and what you do? That's a great question. Um... So, right, it's not for me to say that podcasts aren't, are or are not art because there are some podcasts out there that I've listened to that are just, they are entirely art. Like, for example, I think you would both dig this. There's a guy called Richard McLean Smith who does a podcast called Unexplained, and I had him on the show. See how I'm deflecting from myself here? I had him on the show, um, and he does these kind of like storytelling podcasts about weird, unexplained lore from history generally. Uh, and the way he puts it together it is completely art because it's a blending of music and atmosphere and 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 quite lyrical prose. It's phenomenal. I don't think what I do is art. I think I facilitate artists. You know, I think I do something that's interpretive. Um, and I think it it comes down to perhaps the difference between academic writing and creative writing, and of, of which I've done both. And weirdly, I, I would put this podcast much more in the same compound as that academic stuff that I used to do. 
where it is you are at the fringes of art and you are always secondary to the art. I always consider my role in this to be utterly secondary to the guest. Um, and it's why that, that's why I'm always very, very careful not to be overly critical about books because I haven't fucking written one and they have. You know, even even the worst book I've ever read is better than the book I haven't written. Um, so I, I don't know what I do is art. I think I facilitate art. In my writing life, which is fledgling, um, but, you know, I've had a few things published. Yeah, I think that's art. And I think I am, there's no difference in that between what I do and what you guys do. It's just that you do it more successfully. But the podcast, my podcast is definitely not art in my eyes. Do you agree with that, Josh? I'm not sure. No, not at all. And I, I, <laughs> I didn't want to like uh, go too far down the rabbit hole because I didn't want to like, I, I just figured I was gonna, you were going to ask a question or something. But no, I do not agree with that at all. Um, you know, some people say, you know, everything's art, right? Like the highway, the the, uh, the accountant is is an artist, right? I don't know if I'd necessarily go that far, but I would absolutely say that what you do is, obviously there is an art to what you do. I mean, totally. Um, but more than that, it, it, it seems... When the episodes start to pile up and you start to have this body of work, you start to have this like quilt, right? This uh, patchwork of all these episodes stitched together. Uh, that has to me, that has to be considered a work of art just philosophically alone. The questions you're asking, what you got out of all the books that you're reading, the conversations you've had with all these different creative thinkers. And for you to be the centerpiece of that, the linchpin of that entire quilt there, to me, there's absolutely no question that you, in this realm, you are an artist and this is this is art. It's very kind, but I, I think you are wrong. There is a technique to what I do. There's not an art to it at all, I don't think. I think there's a technique. Art to me is, I don't know, Jesus Christ, better minds than mine have spent centuries debating what is art. But to me, art is always something more than the nuts and bolts of a process. It's always something that is the, the sum is the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, um, and yeah, I think I I like I know that I engage people intellectually, and I like that. And on occasion, I know that I've kind of got people emotionally, which is nice. The episode I did with Gemma and more about mental health, a lot of people wrote to me saying how much that that moved them and stuff. Um, but that's inadvertent, you know. There's nothing calculated behind that. And I can you take credit for something that happens inadvertently i don't i don't think you can well i i do in a sense because if you're the if you're the um the, the spark plug of the event and then within that something inadvertently happens then sure yeah and also you are touched by inspiration you are i mean you're you can't do this many episodes without being so but i you know like you said this this is something to debate to to the uh End of time, but it is interesting to hear your your take on it. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm going to make a hard turn from this <laughs> debate about what is art. And Neil, it was interesting about the first thing that scared you being a man in a gorilla costume because you have an obsession with Bigfoot. <laughs> and I'm wondering yeah. if there's a connection there. And I want to know... If you ever came across Bigfoot in the wild, what would you do? Would you run? Would you try and interact? Would you try and take pictures? I'm curious. Okay. Right. I'll answer the question, but we're not moving on without getting your opinions on Bigfoot. <laughs> so 
for a moment to explain the background of this. I don't think it is the man in the gorilla suit. No, again, it's my dad. To be honest, he gets, I don't want it to go to his head if he listens to this, but almost everything about my creative side of my personality comes from my dad, right? And he, he used to sit me down as a little boy at the table in a very modest kind of tiny house in, in the north of England. And he would sit me down at this. We had like, a, I remember it was like a piece of patio furniture that was in the kitchen. We didn't have much money. And he would sit me there and he bought me this book and it was an encyclopedia of mythology. And he, he would literally turn through it and he would tell me stories about Greek gods, about monsters, about, you know, all of this stuff. He would tell me about things like, Eric von Daniken's theories on ancient aliens and the Loch Ness monster and all the weird stuff that like has fascinated him all his life. Cause he's a, he's a big overgrown child like I am. And that's where all the monster stuff came from. Like this cryptozoology stuff, even now it fascinates me. And I think one of the great tragedies of growing older is that you start to realize there probably isn't a Loch Ness monster. You know, there probably isn't a brontosaurus in the Congo, although I would argue there could be. Um, and I think with with Bigfoot, it's the one, it's the one thing, and by Bigfoot, I mean all of the different iterations of it around the globe. It's the one where I, I'm able to hold on to a shred of hope that it may be true, that there might be something beyond the edge of the campfire. Uh, and it always seems a fairly benign creature as well, and I think I like that. I think I like the fact that it's... It's a it's a monster in the sort of the Frankenstein sort of mold. It's it's you know Rousseau's primitive man. It, it's not evil. It, it's just wild, and I love that. And I love the not to over go on about this, but I also love that it is so tied in to localized lore. I'm a massive fan of indigenous lore, and almost every culture has got an indigenous lore about the wild man that predates any kind of Western colonizing expansion into that region. And I love that. If I met Bigfoot, the one thing I know for a fact is I would tell nobody. I would tell my dad and I would tell my wife, but I would tell nobody else because I I have a real thing about animals and I just know that we would put it in a zoo and that's just the worst thing imaginable. You know, putting something so smart and so close to human in a zoo. I, I despise the whole concept of zoos. That's a whole different conversation. But I would tell nobody. But I think... I think I would sit there and watch at the risk of potentially being gored to death or whatever it does. Um, yeah, I think I'd, I think I'd have to sit and watch. I think I'd, it would be one of the few things worth putting yourself in absolute mortal danger for. Josh, what are your thoughts about Bigfoot? So there's an awesome occultist here in Detroit named John Tenney. Do you know him, Neil? Do either of no, you? No, know I don't. No, no. Oh my gosh. You, oh my God. You should have John Tenney on your show. Oh my God. So he runs a thing called Weird Lectures. Com, and he actually does a ton of lectures and I'm working on making a movie with this guy, him and I starring. Anyway, long story, much shorter. John starts um, a lot of his lectures with he'll ask the audience who here believes in aliens and almost everyone raises their hands. And then it'll be who here believes in ghosts and like half those hands stay up. And then it'll be like, who here believes in Bigfoot? And there'll be like two hands. And then he's like, OK, so. You believe in like extraterrestrial life and, and and invisible spirits before you believe in like an earth earthly, you know, an earthly entity creature that like literally could be here on the planet with us. It's like so backwards to him that mm -hmm. Bigfoot is the thing you would believe in least. Obviously, the easiest response to that is, well, if it was here, we would have found it by now, right? Um, but to see John do those um 
lectures, the first time I saw him, it like got my wheels turning because I don't know if I'd ever like considered, do I believe in Bigfoot before? Um, I definitely want to, and I'm definitely open-minded to it. And I loved, Neil, how you just described how it was, uh, you know, the tragedy of childhood, right? Losing these, these myths and monsters, but here's one that you've held on to. And it's a completely reasonable, to me, a completely reasonable one to hang on to. What about you, Rachel? Yeah, I think so. Why not? I like to like I like to keep the faith. I mean, keep a little magic in the world. Yeah. I believe that there could be a Bigfoot out there. If there is, I probably will never encounter it because I'm not super outdoorsy. So I, I it's like a belief I can have because it's not skin off my nose if he does exist. <laughs> like Neil, you're like, uh, I'll put myself in mortal danger. Me, nah. <laughs> I like the I can romanticize Bigfoot out there in the woods while I stay in my house. <laughs> As someone who once stumbled across a black bear and its cubs in the woods, I I perhaps should rethink my bravery because I beat Taylor there very fast. Well, you're a runner. You could get yeah. Yeah, true is my fast. wife was there and she is not a runner. It's one. It was one of those ways. That it's that thing about you know like I've only got to be faster than my wife, not the bear. Yeah. <laughs> no. Can I ask you about, can you give us some more about your life with running? And, and, and the reason I ask is I'm, I'm very interested. I ran track in high school and um, track and cross country in high school and even walked on in college and somewhat recently got into it again and fell out of it again. Um, what's your relationship with running? It's very unhealthy. I um, I mean, for a start, Josh, I still want the, the book about the track team. I'm just telling you now. I know you've got like 28 books to publish, but I want the one about the track team. Um yeah, so I I started running about six years ago. So I, I moved. Ba right, basically, I had this very weird twenties and early thirties where I was just moved around a lot, all over the world, and like just used to quit a job and go to Switzerland to live, or go to America to live, or stuff, and then came back and had no plans to kind of settle down. Met my wife on just like a Tinder date, moved in with her within seven weeks of the day we met. Um, in this tiny village, as I say, only 10 miles from the town that I was born in. And I moved in, despite being so close to home, I knew nobody at all. Um, and we'd known each other seven weeks. So it's quite a lot of pressure on my wife to entertain me, you know what I mean? Um, and then, so I remember getting off the bus one day after, from my temp job, and there was a, a flyer in the bakery. I live in a tiny little eeny blighton town. Uh, and there was a flyer in the bakery, and it said running club starting. And I thought, great one of the few things I can actually do because I'm not a joiner and I have no talents. So I, I went to this running club thinking, yeah, I'm a runner. I used to run cross, cross country in high school. Little thinking that was like 20 years ago. Yeah, no, no, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, I'm still a runner. And then night one, we went out and we ran like 8K. And I was like, this is much easier with people than running on my own and hating it. And this running club has just become an absolute force for good in the world. I mean, have you ever heard of the, I don't know if it exists in the, in the States, there's a, a thing called Park Run. Have you got that? Mm -mm. Do we? Right. So. It's, it's, a, so. it's a kind of global thing, but not in every country. I know it's in Canada. And Park Run is like this initiative where every Saturday morning there are local parks where you can go and run a 5K route with hundreds of people, or sometimes a dozen people, depends on who turns up. But there are hundreds around the world. And the guy who set up my running club is one of the main kind of players in Park Run. So he knows what he's doing. He's one of my best friends now. Um, 
and I just got into it and it just became something that was like my quiet time because I never, ever, ever switch off. I never, I'm never not stimulated in some way. And when I go for a run, even though I've got a podcast in all music, it's, it's time when I feel quiet. That and cooking are the only times that I get that. But it gets unhealthy. Like, so in 2020 in lockdown, I ran every single day. I, I ran nearly 3,000K in the year. Um, and it became a thing where it's like, you know, doing it for its own sake, doing it to finish the, year, the thing of running every day for a year, you know, punishing yourself. And I, I started doing that again this year. And then just had too much work and just quit it. But it got to the point where in lockdown, me and my friends were running like 80 kilometers, 50 miles in one day and and just stuff like that. It, it got really, it, it became a real crutch during lockdown. I, I have so much to say about that um, in terms of like, for me too, running or even just shooting baskets is like, mm-hmm. I, I almost feel like it's my yoga, right? It's yeah. like meditative, it's repetitive, it's man versus himself. It's all these things. Also, yeah, uh, Allison and I ran in a um, the Detroit Marathon, like a relay. So she went first and then handed it to me. And Allison's a really good runner. Uh, she runs like seven a mile. I run, you know, it was more like 10, you know. Yeah. And um, but to have people like the, the uh, uh, workouts before were so hard for me. But the day of the thing with, with the streets lined with people, it was a totally different world. Like it was oh, like amazing. I wasn't yeah. even running. It was like we were all hanging out and cheering for each other or something. Yeah. I remember my first marathon. I remember I, I get very emotional during marathons because your body chemistry just goes to bits, you know, like, because your body's not supposed to be doing it really. Um, and my body chemistry goes all over the place. And I get very emotional. And I remember turning a corner on my first marathon, that, which nearly killed me, by the way. It was just hell. And I turned the corner and like a big group of my running mates were sort of just stood there observing not for me just for everyone who was running you know and I saw them and just burst into tears <laughs> just absolutely just like had a meltdown with about two miles to go so yeah it is a different thing when you're when you're racing or when you've got a crowd around but I just like I just like running up in the hills in the dark in the snow in the rain it's it's, it's beautifully spooky but I don't actually get scared it sounds amazing um Okay, so I will move on to the next question. You've mentioned you've moved around a lot and lived many lives in many places. Um, you mentioned you were an alpaca farmer <laughs> and that you worked as a nanny in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, so I would be curious for a little bit of backstory on both of those, including <laughs> if you made the children clothing out of drapes, if you like children. Can you elaborate on your experiences in as an alpaca farmer and as a nanny. Well, well, the nanny came first, so, so let's do that. Okay. So I, um, I don't think I have a more exciting life than most. I think I'm just better at making it sound odd and exciting. I think I've had quite a normal life, but I just tell a good story. I, yeah, that's totally normal to <laughs> to be a nanny in Switzerland and also an alpaca farmer. We've all been there. Um. So. My when I was at university, I went I went to a university called Durham in the northeast of England. I it's where they filmed Harry Potter. But like in the first Harry Potter film, the, the, the dining hall, that was where I, I had like my three meals a day in that room. Um, wow. And I used Whoa. to live in like yeah, yeah. I lived in a turret of the castle. It was quite funny. Like when we went when I went to America with my friends from university, we went to the oldest standing building in the contiguous United States and realized that my bedroom at university was three hundred years older. Um, but anyway, whilst I was there, I, I met my then girlfriend who was an Indian girl, 
but who lived in Switzerland. She worked for the UN. And after like several years of just like traveling back and forth every month and, and like it just not being fun, I just, I quit that job, um, just a ridiculous, stupid little post-grad job I had. And I, I just went to Switzerland with no real idea what I was doing and no ability to speak French or German. Um, and got this job working for this young German family who worked for the UN, who had a, that's right, about an about a two-year-old boy, Noah, and a five-year-old daughter, Ella. I don't have kids. There were no kids in my family. I had no experience. And they just gave me the job. I mean, I, I could have been anybody. I don't really understand it, really. Um, but, yeah, I spent a year just looking after this little boy and just, like, every day took him to the park. I taught him to swim, which was nice. I learned a little bit of German because I, I have this theory that if you want to learn a language, speak to a child because they literally bring it down to what you need to know. So yeah, that it was amazing. I just I lived. I went like snowboarding or hiking every weekend in the Alps. It was just one of those incredible things that just happened. Um, and then the alpaca thing <laughs> moved, moved home. Did did my PhD. Had a breakdown. Um, and then was working for the probation service, like parole. I suppose what you guys would call it, uh, like the parole board. And then hated that. Hated every job I've ever had until I went started doing this basically. And then I just basically decided I want to write a novel. And I wanted this novel to be set on an American farm somewhere like Wyoming or Montana or somewhere like that. I've still got the idea for it. It's a sort of ghost story, crime noir thing. Anyway, started looking at ways I could go and do the research. I found this thing called, um, I can't remember what it was called. There's, there's lots of these, these organizations where you basically go somewhere and work for board and lodgings. You don't get paid. You just... You just go and like live there for a bit and do jobs around the place. And I, I'm not quite sure it's actually legal with your visa setup. I don't, I don't, I don't want to pursue that too much. Um, but the, I kind of got mission drift. Was it was supposed to be a sort of research trip to learn about this thing? But then I found there was a really cool place in Vermont, living with these two gay guys, and they lived on like a hobby farm in the middle of nowhere in Vermont, like 90 miles from the nearest main town, Concord. And I went and stayed with them and they had alpacas and donkeys and sheep and a, a big fat pig called Paxel, who became my like my best mate. I used to tickle his belly till he fell asleep and then I would sleep on him like a pillow whilst I read my book. Um, and I used to look at the animals and then the rest of the time I taught myself how to use a chainsaw and I spent an entire sort of late summer into winter just cutting down trees on this farm and cutting them up and then splitting them with an axe for firewood. And that's how I lived my life for like four months with the alpacas. And this was like on a farm that was, there was no phone. There was only Wi-Fi. If the Wi-Fi went down, there was no connection to the outside world at all. I'm using a chainsaw often on my own for days at a time. How I'm not dead, I don't know. But yeah, I survived it. And then from there, I went to Maine and I worked in a really nice restaurant kitchen in Maine. And then from there, I went all the way across to BC, to a town called Kelowna in Canada. And I worked in a dog sanctuary for like three or four months. And then I got the train all the way back. I remember, I got, I got on the train in Vancouver on the 2nd of January. And I didn't get off the train until Toronto four days later. And I didn't have a bed, just slept in the chair. Um, and I flew home. And then I got married like a year later. <laughs> That's my life. That uh, I don't know what the book is that you're writing that you said. I think you said you're halfway through, but I hope that there's 
these scenes in it. And if not, then you need to write a second one as well. Yeah. <laughs> it was a fun year. That's an amazing. That's that all sounds incredible. Like I'm, I'm a, I mean, I almost feel like who's not, but I'm a huge animal guy myself. Uh, and that all sounds unbelievable. If Allison heard all that, she'd be like, all right, let's go. Let's go live that life. For you. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. People say they can't do it. Right. I think I actually spent, if you exclude travel, which I probably cost, you know, what's a flight these days? I don't know. The, the travel cost at what, what it costs. But I actually, in expenses, I think I spent about $2,000 in the entire year because you've got all your food, you've got all your, your lodgings. All you need is kind of like the money you need to do the things when you're not working, a little bit of sightseeing, and you just cut your budget to what you've got, you know? So it's it's definitely doable for people if they want to just like sod off and have have a time for a while. Definitely doable. People think it isn't. Um, cool. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Um, okay. I'm going to take a hard turn again, which I kind of like these hard turns, by the way. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like, um, going from timeline to philosophy, timeline to philosophy, maybe something like that. Anyway, it's cool to me or something. It's almost like a bizarre narrative that's forming here. Um, I have a question for you. So with like music, I, mm -hmm. at some point, you know, was recording songs. I'm in a band and we, we've made all, like we've recorded 200 songs, whatever it is. At some point, you, you you start to hear music like the bass is over here, the drums over here, they overdub the guitar here, um, they double track the voice. Like the like, it's hard for me to listen to music now without it being like separated, right? Yeah. And you know, like the the details, or to at least be able to guess the details that went into the recording and etc. And I'm I'm always uh, trying to guard the book side of me from that. Like I never want to lose like my innocence with writing books. It's one of the reasons that I often don't read a book more than once. Like somebody will say, like, I read it for the enjoyment and then I read it to see how she did it. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to know how she did it. I don't, yeah, I don't yeah. want to know that. I don't, I don't I, and maybe I should want to know that, but I don't want to. I just want to be innocently blown away and inspired constantly and never see behind the curtain. Your gig, doing what you do, podcasts, talking to writers and getting in depth, like analyzing stories and this kind of thing. Do you ever fear, well, number one, do you feel that separation when you're like reading a book, like he or she, like, this is what they did. I can, I can tell like the, like the intricacies, the, the, the gears behind this book. And do you ever fear that because of your gig, it, you know, it changes how you read and you might lose your innocence or fire as a reader. Do you see what I'm saying? Like completely, man. Yeah. Okay. And that, that has happened to an extent, but I don't think it's an irredeemable situation. I think you just need a break. So I've read at last count about 55 books this year. Now I know some of these bloggers, you you see the Goodreads thing and it's like, I'm on book 240 of the year. Yeah, I and know. I'm always a little bit, it's not that, <laughs> I don't want to say I don't believe people, but I'm like, how are you doing that? Because how are you actually reading just on sheer time? How are you, you know, you say the average book has what, 280 pages. So some are going to be longer, you know, how are you reading the best part of a book a day and maintaining that over a year? I, I don't know. It's, it's not for me to say I couldn't do it. I read kind of like just over a book a week, probably something like six, seven books a month. Because often what, I, what it is, if, if someone's like brand new and they've got a new book out, I'll just read the, that book. Yeah. So, for example, when I spoke to you, Rachel, the first time, just read The Return. But I didn't want to speak to you the second time without reading Cackle as well as Such Sharp Teeth because the connections are what make the conversation good, you know. So quite often I'll try and do a bit of back reading into people's people's stuff as well. So it, it kind of mounts up. And this year, 
after like 120 episodes, I did start to hit, hit like a real a real wall with it. And I've had quite a, a stressful, horrible sort of few months with just trying to, because Halloween happened and I was writing a lot of stuff for Esquire um, and I was doing the podcast and I have the Patreon as well. And I got lots, as, as chances have it, I got loads and loads of like freelance work in my day job. So I was doing just, I was just endlessly working. And like when you go to bed and you're reading a book for the show, it still feels like work. And it's like, I'm, oh, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm waffling on. But yeah, that it, it, it starts to take its toll a bit just in terms of the, the, the hassle and the effort of it. Um, so I was sorry. So I was starting to worry that I'm not actually enjoying any of these books. I'm reading them as a process. You know, I'm literally powering through them to get to the end and already thinking I can't wait for the next one. And the minute I start that, I'm like, just get to the end, get to the end. And it's a bit unfair to people's work sometimes mm -hmm. because these are not bad books. These are just, it's, I'm the problem, you know, they're, they're not yeah. bad books. Um, and then, so basically I'm taking a, a short break over Christmas and I have got various plans for the show next year, which may change things a little. We could talk about that perhaps. I have one thing I want to mention on this, actually it's a bit of, an, a, bit of a, uh, you know, what's the phrase? Like a, when you announce something anyway. Um, but every so often, just when I think I'm reaching the point where like, I can't do it anymore, I'm not enjoying reading, a book comes along that just cures me. And as chance would have it, the last book I read this year was Phil Fracassi's A Child Alone With Strangers, which is one of the greatest horror books I have ever read. It ever. It's masterful. And I was like, oh, even here, even at the ragged end of my patience and my, 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 my sort of mental stability, I can still enjoy a book for its own sake. And what was interesting was I barely took any notes on that book to the point I was thinking, what, what am I going to ask Philip? But then it, the question just came intuitively because I loved it so much, you know? And oh, for sure. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. I, I did that. I did the launch with him for that. Mm. I it was Daphne and a child alone. Yeah. Child alone is, is phenomenal. Philip's awesome too, to yeah. talk with, by the way, like he, he's in, he does an incredible, as you know, an incredible podcast as well. I, you know, I think there is a, um, like a reading shape to be in and Rachel, you'll, you'll probably relate to this. Like blurbing, blurbing it. <laughs> Yeah. The blurbs of starring Tom Hanks. It's like, it, it can get kind of intense and it's not, and it's exactly what you said, Neil. It's not the fault of the writer or the book even. It's just the sense that you, it is like the job or something. It's like, it's like I'm supposed to do this rather than just grabbing, you know, um, uh, the Prince of Tides off a shelf randomly and yeah. reading it like you used to always do. And I think that psychologically there's something there where I, even if the book's awesome, I'm reading this for this intention rather than just to read. And that yeah. can, and like you said, like I need, I definitely need breaks from that. Rachel, are you like that too? Yeah. I didn't realize that I'd gotten to that point until it was this year where I'd only read. And I like, I love reading blurb books. I love blurbing, but it's just different because in the back of your mind, there's this idea that like, I, I need to, I need to be doing something here instead of just being the reader. Um, so the first book that I read for pleasure this year, I was like, this is a different experience. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I realized I the distinction until it happened, until I, I, I felt it. Because um, it's just something in the back of your mind while you might not even be cognizant of it, but it's there. It, it, it reached ahead for me when I was reading – Chuck Wendig's 
um, Wayward, the sequel to uh, what's it called? Uh, Wanderers. Wanderers. Yeah. Now I hadn't read Wanderers because I haven't got time to fit a thousand page book into my reading schedule if it's not going to be on the show. Do you know what I mean? And he was supposed to be on the show in well in this this month, and I I had to email him just say Chuck, I'm so sorry, I haven't got the time or mental capacity to, to read these two books in, in the two weeks I'd given myself to read them. Cause it would have been like a minimum of a hundred pages a day. And I was just like, I can't, I can't commit to that every day. I, I, I do realize there are people down mines right now or in sweatshops who are working the fingers of the bone. And I'm complaining about reading. I do. I do understand that. Um, but I still had to write, because I have this thing that I will not have someone on the show if I haven't read their book. I think it's, I've read too much bullshit journalism where they ha- they clearly haven't read the book. So, and that's a promise I, a red line I drew in the sand really early. So I wrote to Chuck saying, I, I just can't. And he was, I mean, he was typically himself. He was so gracious about it and so nice. And I hope at some point to get him back on to talk about it. But that's when I realized I needed a break because I was like, I'm now actually making myself quite stressed and, and, and kind of unhappy about one, doing something I love for a podcast that people are not going to complain if they, you know, if I take a week off. <laughs> Well, I think I think that you're you're doing exactly the right thing because we are you do love you love this and we all three mm. of us love this, right? And so we, that means that we also have to kind of protect this, right? Just just like with running or whatever, like if your foot's screwed up, you got to deal with it, right? And it's mm. like and I'm just very aware of that in my own life, like like do I never want books and especially writing books and or reading, but like I just never want it to turn on me. Never. Yeah. And if, if if I'm stretched, if it's all right, all right, all right, stop for a second. But don't ever, don't ever let this turn on you, and don't ever turn on it. And I and I think that you're right. I mean, that's just breaks. But it, but it is, again, it is what we asked for, and it's an awesome, it's an awesome life that we're living with it. So balls back in my court. <laughs> Bring up the old Stephen King. Oh. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I believe you've mentioned that it is your favorite book. Right? Have I? Is are you are you fucking with me or have you? No, 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 no. I'm being sarcastic. Okay. Um, <laughs> I have a few questions in here. Yeah. So I like to fancy myself a Richie, but deep down, I know, I know, I'm an Eddie. So I want to <laughs> know which character do you think you're the most like or relate to the most? And then I also want to know if you ever got Stephen King on your show. What would you talk to him about, or would you be able to like hold it together, or would you oh, God. be so nervous you couldn't even get a word out? Oh God! Um, right. First of all, the question about which loser—no one's ever asked that before. I've never, I've never, I've never really considered that before. Um, the character who speaks to my heart is Ben Haskam. Not, I was okay. never, I was never a chubby kid. I was always a painfully skinny kid, but. The, the unrequited love thing with Bev, you know, my heart burns there too. It's, it, it, yeah, that was me. I, I was like king of the friend zone when I was a kid. <laughs> so I was very much Ben Haskam with a little bit of Eddie because <laughs> I'm a massive hypochondriac, huge hypochondriac. Uh, and, but also I have to be in charge. So a little bit Bill. So yeah, kind of my heart is with, 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 uh, with Ben, my my terrors are with Eddie, and my kind of I suppose my need to be in control is with Bill. Fair, Josh. I'm going to ask you too before we go into the second part about 
Stephen King on the show? Man, um, you know, I read this book recently uh, with Allison, and it was and, a, and another friend. Pennywise? No. <laughs> 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 I, I maybe maybe Bev, um, I the 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 like uh, tenacity or writing whatever that Bill has is his name's Bill right the main the writer yeah. dude the writer kid yeah um but there's something about Bev that I relate to like spiritually on a spirited level um I wasn't she I think if I remember right she was like abused and stuff I I didn't go through that but there was well actually I do have a story anyway whatever but the point is. Um, her spiritually something about her, like the fire in her, the, the, the idea of her resonated like huge with me. She's definitely the hero of the book. The more I read it, the more I realize she is the, she is the, the fulcrum upon which it turns. She's the moral heart of that book. And cause she's the one who defies the abuse. You know, she's the one who Derry most affects like in, yeah. in the figure of her father. Derry is, is in her life and she has no support. And she still fights back and wins. And that's why I fucking hate the Andy Machete movie. Because, well, I particularly hate the sequel because of the the, the way he basically chooses to re, re, just... He swaps out scares for laughs and it irritates me. But also the fact that he turns Bev into a damsel in distress. I think it just misses the entire point of her character and the book as a whole. You know, I just read eleven twenty two, and it was. Uh, have you both read that? Yeah, my second favorite King, probably. I mean, oh my god, I can't believe how how I honestly can't believe how good that book is, and mm. I that whole, I didn't love the whole like Richie and Bev in the book stuff. I just just that part of it for some reason just I didn't really love. Um, but there it was interesting to see them right after the events of it. You know, yeah. to see the kids yeah. like like the monster's gone now, but like there's still sort of this hollow echo mm-hmm. of the monster, and it's almost like um, Richie and Bev were like dancing and like trying to move on with their lives and all this like stuff. But there was like a sense of like they had been through some shit, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was yeah. that was kind of interesting to see. But anyway, eleven twenty two is that's one of the best books I've ever read in my life. It's got I think it's got his greatest sure. ending. Like it, I always say, it's the ending that you you don't want it, but you have to have it. Oh, it was brutal. I was like, oh, I was like, the book opens with I'm not a crying man. And by the end, yeah. you're like, I was a puddle. Yeah, 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 <laughs> I know. In, in another life, baby. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, your stop. Heart. No, it's brutal. <laughs> brutal. Um, and the, you're the, what do you want to ask me about, Rachel, about what I would say to King? If you got him on the show, what would you talk to him about? And would you be able to hold it together? I think I'd be able to hold it together. The reason I think I would, I interviewed a a guy who will not be famous to you guys, but he's called Mark Kermode. And he's Britain's sort of biggest film critic. He's Britain's Roger Ebert, but he has a real fondness for horror and the macabre. And he he also did a PhD in horror literature. Um, And he's on the radio, right? So he's had this long running... Um, radio show. It's like a, a, a double act he does with a guy called Simon Mayo, one of Britain's most famous broadcasters. And they talk about film. It's one of the first podcasts everybody hear it big. He built this kind of almost family where you listen. It's like to listen to your friends. There's a million in-jokes. It's almost you know, indecipherable to a newbie. And I've listened to him all of my adult life. And I, he came on the show to talk about his favourite movie uh, book to movie adaptations. And 
I've spoken to lots of people, you know, and I've never been as nervous. I was literally like shaking, like with nerves, like twitting. My, my wife had to talk me down before it because I've always said that my three sort of North stars are Stephen King, Bruce Springsteen and Mark Commode. And Mark Commode feels quite small fry compared to their cultural, you know, currency. But to me, he's just a guiding light. And having spoken to him, the minute I started talking, it was just a chat with somebody who was an enthusiast like I am. So I think, or I hope, that if ever I got the chance to speak to King, from two minutes in, I'd be fine. I'd just be chatting and loving it. But beforehand, I would be a wreck. And in terms of what I'd ask him, I think the, the real problem I'd face is that I'd, he would come on the show once to talk about his latest book, because I get how this gig works, you know? And like you guys are very gracious and you're very happy to kind of talk about anything. I feel like King would be here on a laser focus mission to talk about his latest book. He'd be, uh, you know, at the behest of his publicity machine. That is super interesting. I, I wouldn't even have thought of that angle. Like, yeah, you're, you're used to like an, an elastic environment with like uh, like minded like writers about people. But here somebody would be coming just for that express purpose, most likely well, that. That's interesting. It has happened. It's happened with people on who I kind of quite recently works like, right, I'm doing this is a thing I'm doing as a kind of, you know, publicity obligation. And that's fine because mm -hmm. I don't have any skin in the game with mm -hmm. that. It's, you know, it's fine. But with King, I'd want to ask him a million things. I want to be like, you know, I want to just take him back, you know, to, to night shift. I'd want to go back to the long walk. I'd want to talk about everything. And of course, he, he's not got the time for that. You know, he's not going to want to do that. So I think it would be quite painful for me to restrict it to, to kind of what was on the table. Unless, unless he's, um, you know, unless he's, I could charm him, who knows? But I, I, I swing back and forth on whether it will ever, ever happen because I, I just don't know. I, I, I don't know if it'll happen or not. Maybe if I, I thought when I wrote all the stuff about ranking his books for Esquire and stuff, I thought that might open some doorways, but I've written to his publicist and it's just a wall. You just don't get a response at all. So who knows? And with, with Twitter dying on its ass, it, it's kind of that is dangerous for me because all of my sort of pseudo access to these people, you know, you, you, you get lucky, you get like you get a tweet that goes viral and someone sees it all. Like, for example, when I tweet about Margaret Atwood and she now follows me and Guillermo del Toro follows me and that happens because of Twitter, you think, you know, things could happen. They're both going to come on the show next year. And what if that happened with King? You know, who knows? But with Elon wreaking his magic, that might go. And I just don't know if it'll happen or not. Let's let's hope it does. I think it's probably likely that something like that is on the horizon. Uh, 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 Rachel, I mean, I, I don't know if I even want to ask you, but what if you had him in a conversation? What would you, what would you say to him? What would you? Stephen say? King. Yeah. I I can barely articulate to begin with. So I, I think I would, I think I would just combust. <laughs> I would say something, I would open my mouth and the stupidest thing imaginable would come out of it. And then I would turn around and <laughs> add it to my embarrassing moments loop that I play in my head constantly. I, I don't know. I couldn't do it. So I, I, Neil, I have faith that you would be like, you'd get on and you'd be cool as a cucumber. Yeah. I have no doubt you'd be anxious yeah. beforehand, but um, you can pull it together. I'm, I'm terrible. I'm it's, it's amazing. I'm allowed to be a person. So <laughs> I, I'm content to never speak with him.
I, I would have to refrain from telling him that I once spent the week living opposite his house, um, which is true. <laughs> um, I went couch surfing and she lived opposite his house. Um, so I would refrain from telling him that, I think, because that wouldn't be a good look. Do you have the picture in front of the gate? Yeah, I've got the picture in front of the gate, yeah. He wasn't home. I was peer- At one point, a car turned up. And I was like, oh, he's here. But he was, in, he was on one of his Florida retreats. He wasn't home, sadly. Like- a while ago, they said he was going to, his house, that house mm. was going to turn into a writer's retreat. Oh, yeah. yeah, I heard this. Oh, yeah. And then I feel like it, I never heard anything since. Mm. Yeah, no, I don't know. I, I, there's a lot of rumor, isn't there? I don't know. What about you, Josh? Because you must have a question you want to ask him. Uh, I, I think, well, as you, and I don't mean to say this braggy wise, but Neil, as you know, I have zero imposter syndrome and I have zero. <laughs> uh, I, I never see people in terms of bigger or smaller than each other or this kind of thing. But with this guy, I would so want to talk to him about being prolific and the pros and cons of it. And like the, you know, the identity that either he found in being prolific or has found in being prolific or not. The, am I moving too fast? Am I not moving fast enough? All this sort of, you know, uh, questions I'm always asking myself about this. Like I, I don't have that many people in my life that operate uh, in the same way like this. Like Bob Pollard from Guided by Voices is like this. Hitchcock was like this. Um, Stephen King is like this. And I almost like in a therapeutic way would love to be able to talk to someone that that works at this speed also just about that stuff. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, it would be like, oh my God, you get this. And I've never been able to talk to someone about this, Mr. King. <laughs> did you ever feel fucking nuts about this too? And he'd be like, of course I did. <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> it's a good problem to have though. I'd, I'd love to listen to that conversation. <laughs> if if Josh, you ever get on a podcast with Stephen King, I would love to be a fly on the wall to listen oh, to yeah. you guys talk about being prolific. But yeah, when, I, would I couldn't physically be there because oh. I, I would be so sweaty. <laughs> Just no, stop. You both would be amazing. Also, Neil, I think that you would sort of definitely sneak in like the long walk and stuff. Cause, because, you know, if you guys were talking about a new book of his, I could easily see you slipping, uh, you know, a likeness or a reference to an older thing where maybe you didn't have to, hey, I want to go through your whole career, but I could see you like smoothly, including everything you want to talk about anyway. Thank you. Yeah. It, it would be a very, very, very sort of like guerrilla attack. <laughs> gorilla attack back to that again yeah. mm, first, first year <laughs> uh i got a question for you and this is kind of like the obvious most obvious question um what was the aha i'm doing the podcast moment for you mm-hmm. um and two-parter um did you hit the ground running meaning finding your groove right away and if not like how deep into it you know that kind of thing so when was the aha moment and how quickly did you find your groove with it by ha ha, do you mean in terms of the inspiration to do it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm struggling to remember this because I, I sort of had the, I had the idea a while back. I can't remember why. Sorry, that's a really boring answer, but it's just one of those things that just kind of emerged from the murk at the back of my mind. And I've always been a painfully lazy person. Painfully lazy. I've always just put off everything till tomorrow. And I've had lots of good ideas and done nothing about them. Always felt like I can't, like I don't have the skills, like I don't know how to do things. Particularly with technology, I'm a real Luddite. And then in lockdown, I'd already decided to quit my job because I worked for a a huge kind of sportswear kind of retailer as a copywriter. And I was just so unhappy. 
and I decided to quit. And I was saving up for years to quit and try and write. And then lockdown happened and we had, a, you know, there's a lot of financial insecurity about what's going to happen. My wife was an accountant. So it's like, what's going to happen with her job, if, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then it just got so bad that I was just like, I'm just doing it. I'm just quitting. And I remember thinking, like, if I quit my job just to write, I'll be alone all day in lockdown feeling like I'm achieving nothing because there isn't an end goal. You know, there isn't like, oh, I've done, you know, you know you're not going to finish the novel for X amount of time. And I know that I need to be continually driven by some kind of like tangible success. So I went back to the idea of the podcast and thought, well, that would be good because that's a weekly thing. And, you know, it, it has, you can do stats and, and, and analytics and you can see how it's doing and, but it was never supposed to be a main thing. It was supposed to be a thing that supplemented my, you know, my, my sense of self-satisfaction at the side of writing. And the weird thing was how it started, because I'd interviewed Paul Tremblay before, randomly. But he, I'd, he's the only person I'd ever interviewed. I'd, I'd never done an interview in my life with anybody apart from Paul, because someone sent me his book and I just got in touch. And it, it just happened for a tiny magazine called Slant. And um, so I knew Paul, right? I had his email address. So I emailed him and he was like, um, yeah, I'll do it. And he gave me John Langan's contact details because they're good friends. And John said yes. And then this was like a few weeks before I started recording. And with, with those two as my calling card, I just started writing to publishers and everyone said yes. Now, I don't know how that happened because... We had, I had like, I can't think who the first people were, but I had like Paul and John and then Sylvia Moreno-Garcia, who was, she was white hot with Mexican Gothic, you know? And then there was like Emily Danforth and T. Kingfisher and like, you know, big names, Ruman Alam, who is a very literary, respected writer. And these people just came through for me. And I always wondered whether it was, whether it was the one time that having a doctorate <laughs> actually came in useful because it never came in useful before. And I wondered if having that there and saying, you know, I've got some expertise, whether that helped, because everyone just said yes, and it was just really fruitful. And then how it, in terms of how I did it, like I have no, no background at all in audio, in interviewing, in anything. So I just kind of winged it. And it, it's, I mean, sorry, it's not an interesting answer, but it just, it just kind of works. I just managed to build a rapport with people and it, it just, it just took off. And I think, I think around the time that I spoke to you for the first time, Rachel, the sort of the end of that first year, I started to get better. And I remember speaking to Michael Marshall Smith. And that was the first time that I felt like I'm really in control of this now because. Oh, that's cool. That, that's cool that you're aware of that. Like you actually felt that happening. You're like, oh man, this is, it's, it's like where the, um, uh, the know-how outweighs the nervousness or outweighs the, uh, pattering of your feet to get everything in order and like to get through it or whatever. Yeah, like that you yeah. remember that distinctly is is pretty awesome. Well, because Ma Michael's quite a formidable character. I mean, he's a delightful man, but he's he's got quite an austere. Now, that's that sounds too harsh. He's a lovely guy, but he has a kind of headmasterliness about him, if you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I remember I remember thinking three months ago this man would have terrified me because he wasn't particularly in the business of making me feel comfortable. It was just a great conversation. And I remember thinking, yeah, I've got this now. 
episode three, Sylvia Moreno Garcia really had it was a difficult chat. She was very kind of prickly about the kind of my take on the post-colonial nature of her book and stuff. And, and, and it was quite a difficult one to navigate. Um, and I think if that, had, if just like sort of like 20 episodes later, I could deal with that way better. Yeah. So that's when it took oh, off. Really. Interesting. Yeah. Though that, you know, that opens up like other, I would never ask, like, did you have a bad one? I mean, that's just a yeah. dumb question. But like that idea that some are, I mean, because these are all drastically different personalities, mm-hmm. you know, and then some yeah. are not difficult, but just like more, more of a navigation than others. That's, that's super interesting. The, the, the two guests I was most nervous about in terms of getting it wrong, rather than nervous about the fame or anything like that, um, was Carmen Maria Machado and Gretchen Felker Martin. And it's because I am not a gender theorist by any means. You know, you, you, I'm just you, your bog standard, cis, white, middle class, Western male, you know, like could not be more just bland and boring in that regard. And I try and keep on top of obviously the gender discourse and and the queer discourse and the trans discourse and all that. But I'm always worried that I don't quite have the right vocabulary or that my understanding is too shallow. Um, and I, th- I've built the show around asking, you know, really informed questions that get under the skin of a book. And, and I remember thinking that Carmen, you know, she, again, is quite a formidable person. Her, her work is quite provocative. And I remember thinking this could go wrong. I could come across like a right idiot here. And I, I dealt with that one by just saying to her, look, I'm, I'm an idiot in this regards to this stuff. So if I say the wrong thing, just tell me. And she kind of loved that. And she was kind of very, she was like, thanks for saying that. You know, a lot of people just kind of bulldoze through and don't care. And it was the same with uh, Zakia Delilah Harris, because her book is entirely, her book, The the Other Black Girl, which if you haven't read it, you must read, is entirely about how the black experience should not be about explaining itself to white people. <laughs> and then I sat down as a white person to have a conversation asking Zakia about, you know, her experience. And it was like quite a difficult thing to navigate, to not buy into the, to become the antagonist of her novel. <laughs> and, and you just, and I found that basically being very open and saying, look, I'm, I, you know, cards on the table. I, I may not have the right background. I may not have the right vocab. I, I mean, well, and it's, it's, there's never been one occasion where that has not just reaped dividends. Going off that, is there something that surprised you about podcasting in general? And would you say that, that was, that's the most challenging part is having these conversations where you feel you might not have the right vocabulary? Um, is that the biggest challenge or is there something else that's been, that you would consider more challenging about talking scared? So gr- growing the audience is a challenge because you work in the vacuum, you know. But um, the, the technical stuff was a real challenge early doors because I don't know what I'm doing. I still don't know what I'm doing. I've learned just enough to produce this show. Anything beyond that, not got a clue. But yeah, definitely it is the, in terms of the challenge that matters because yeah, if the audio is not great one week, great, be fine the week after, you know, who cares? Um, but getting it right with some, what do I mean by this? So, I think it's a double whammy, right? Because I'm often talking to people about their books and they have different lived experience to me. And they've also written a book by 
by you know dint of the genre, which is more often not about problematic, challenging, traumatic things. So it's not like they've written a nice, cuddly book. They've written really challenging books that provoke and trouble. So there's a lot that can go wrong in that. A lot that can go wrong if you're willing to get into the meat of it and not just skim across the top like a you know like a lot of literary podcasts do. And I don't want to do that. Um, and I'm, I am I am also aware as much like you said off air, Josh, that you know that you present like as really lovely all the time, and you kind of want people to see sometimes that there is there's something behind that, you know. And I think like my social media presence and my on my my podcasting presence, I'm quite an affable chap. I'm quite you know I'm, I'm I am. I like to think quite progressive, um, but I, I want it to be okay to get things wrong. I think that's a really important space to protect, that it is okay to get things wrong if you mean well. And I don't mean the kind of patronizing, say what you want and apologize. I don't mean that because you, you can't do that. You've got to do the work. But I think it's really important in the current media space to remember that everyone is doing their best any good intention people are doing their best. And if you get it wrong, you're not going to be cancelled or shut down or treated like an idiot, you know. And and I, I've been impressed by how much my listeners have gone with me when I know I've said things in not quite the right way or when I've left something hanging that could be taken a certain way. I've never had one kind of blowback on anything. Uh, and I, And some of that is testament to me. I'll own that. But I think a lot of it is testament to the audience and I think it I think it reaffirms this thing that we should all remember that social media <laughs> yeah, is, is not life. And most most people, regardless of where they sit on whatever spectrum, are kind of open to someone being honest and just having a conversation. And they're not actually sitting there waiting for someone to put a foot wrong so they can, in inverted commas, cancel them. I think most people are very, very tolerant. And that's that's been a surprise in a good way. Well, I think I think an uh, uh, maybe perhaps obvious reason for that. I mean, listen, you know, listen how much nuance is just here in this conversation right now, right? Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, for me, the thing I always struggle with, like I'm, I'm like barely on Twitter, and the thing that I struggle with it is, is that I just don't, I don't think in permanent opinions or even just temporarily yeah. permanent opinions, declaratives. I don't think in these little smaller uh, character limited statements. I just don't. Mm -hmm. um, even, you know, uh, even if I saw a movie or whatever, I have so much to say about it or so little. And I'd rather do what we're doing right now. What I, the point is, though, in, for you, you're literally on display in an unfathomably nuanced way in the podcast, whether you realize that or not. So it makes a lot of sense that an audience would um, go along with the journey with you. And and I don't know, forgive is the right word. But if you if you did something wrong or said something wrong, they'd understand because they're hearing someone who means well. And that hearing someone who means well, you can't hear that on on Twitter. And so, you know, so that makes a lot of sense that, that you've experienced that, I think. Yeah, it's been nice. It's been really nice to remember that we're, you know, I don't think we are that different as a species than we were pre-social media. I think we just think we are because of social media. <laughs> yes. Um, did you say you're halfway through a novel? Did you say that? <laughs> How's it feel, Neil? How's it feel to be asked about your novel? Yeah, I would like to hear about your novel and, and however much you want to tell us. And and it's my favorite subject. So what's up with it? Okay, right. Listeners, I apologize, all right, because some listeners will have heard this 
ad nauseum. Others, others will have not, right? So if you've listened this far, you're already on board with a self-indulgence, so I'll go with you a bit further. So I have got two novels, both of which are around 60,000 words done. The reason that's a problem is that both of them are only about a third of the way through their story, if that, right? So mm-hmm. I, I write long. I, I, weirdly, I've, I've published two short stories, um, which I'd actually be really interested if you take a look at, actually, just to see what you think. I might send them to you when you've got a minute. But I've, I've writ, written two short stories, and that was agony because I, I do not do brevity at all. And I, I was writing one novel, which is kind of like the book of my heart, as they say, which is essentially about a facsimile of my that small town I told you about that I grew up in, backwards looking, sort of not many chromosomes to go around kind of place. And um, it's, it's, it's all about the law of the land and the quarrying, which was the industry you know, the historical industry around here, the, the, the landscape around here is littered with quarries. And there are all sorts of stories about kids disappearing into these quarry mines and being lost and all sorts of weird stuff. And I was writing one book about that, which also tied in to, you've heard of this phenomenon of the the, the old hag who sits on your chest, right? When you wake up with sleep paralysis. No. Really? Josh, you heard of this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like the 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 nightmare demon yeah, on your chest. Yeah, yeah. It's where the phrase haggard comes from, as in hag ridden. It's haggard is um a kind of condensation of, of the word um of hag ridden. It means you haven't slept well because you've been, you know, troubled all night. It's the it ties into the succubus myth, all that all that sort of stuff. And and the thing I find fascinating about it is all around the world in different cultural modes and different places regardless of religion regardless of creed regardless of anything people report seeing an old lady on their chest and i find any kind of transcultural phenomenon fascinating so my story basically tries to answer why that would be the case and i've come up with quite a cool a cool answer that i think works and one day i hope i want people to see it um but it I need to find a way to write that book without it being 300,000 words long. So I need to learn the craft a little bit more before I can tackle it. So I stopped writing that in a fit of despair. And then I moved on to, I thought, right, I'm going to write something that is kind of like ready for an airport departure lounge that is just tiny and neat and like goes to the throat and, you know, like elevator pitch type thing. And I'll, I'll, I'll say this out loud because I'm actually interested, right, in, in people's opinions. The story I was writing was the, the elevator pitch is Die Hard on an Island. Oh, okay. Me and my wife went to the Maldives on our honeymoon. And the Maldives, it's a, a, a wonderful place. Obviously, there's a, people, there's a reason people go there on their honeymoon. But it's also a really, really troubling schizophrenic place because you've got these islands, these atolls, that are host to absolute Western excess, like the, you know, the pinnacle of Western excess. Yeah. And just over the water, you've got the mainland or you've got local islands in which people are living largely under Sharia law. And I can't think of anywhere else in the world where the two spheres, the two extremities of ideology are so closely, well, in conflict, and they are in conflict increasingly. 
And when, when we went, it was in the middle of a real spate of terror attacks when ISIS was kind of running rampant. I remember sitting there thinking, I don't understand why there hasn't been an attack on one of these islands because there's no security. The Maldives has got the highest proportion of overseas people going to join ISIS in the world per capita, or it did have. I remember thinking, like, I don't get why they haven't just got a fishing boat, rocked up with a load of Kalashnikovs, and taken an island full of rich white people hostage. I thought, well, that makes a great story. Yeah. So I started writing that story. And the reason I stopped is because I worry massively about writing the kind of book that they would invite me on Fox News to talk about. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, that would be a nightmare, man. Like, I, yeah. be, I, don't know what I, would, I don't know what I would do if like Fox News was like, dude, we love your book. Yeah, exactly. I tried to do a lot of research into oh, you know, local custom and all that, but I just thought I simply do not have... Because I was obviously trying... I made sure that I was writing from... A, a local and Islamic perspective as well in some of the characters. But it felt fraudulent. I remember thinking, I, I'm not sure that I've got the... the I've got, I know I can do it if I had the knowledge, but I don't think I've got enough of the knowledge to do this in a way that is respectful enough that it's not massively exploitative. Sure. Um, and it's quite nice to admit that because I'm actually interested in what people think. Well, I, I think like I, I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say I've had an idea exactly like what you're describing, but I have had ones where I'm like, do I know what do I know this subject at all? Like, what am I doing right now? And I feel like, you know, if you've got enough ideas, well, maybe that's the natural selection for me that I'm like, all right, then don't do that one. Yeah. But let's do it. Let's do it. You know, if you really feel this way, Josh, like you actually know nothing about this and it would take. I don't know, study or, or like constant, you know expert at my side or something. I don't know. Maybe this isn't the one for you then or son. Mm. Yeah. But I'm, I, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to tell you to kill an idea. That's like a terrible. No, no. I mean, I, I think I've already killed it to be honest. And I, it was pretty good as well. What I wrote, but I just, maybe I'm worried too much. Maybe there's a million books written that would just like, you know, maybe a million odds would just go, Oh, fuck it. Here's the book. You know, let, let the, the cards fall as they would. But say it was successful. Say it was really successful. Do I want my first book to be a book in which the villain is from a culture that I know nothing about and have probably got things wrong. It's pr- probably not the wisest thing to do or, or even the right thing to do. You know, I think there's enough, I think there's a, there, there are enough lazy stereotypes that monster people in this world without me writing one more. Yeah. If you're that worried about it, I don't, I don't think no. it's, if it's that stressful to even think about, mm. I don't know if you're even going to be able to finish no. it. No. Um, but I mean, if you have words of it down that you like, you know, nothing's ever dead. In my opinion, you could repurpose it for something that you actually feel good about. Weirdly. I mean, you know, thankfully and and touch wood, the ISIS terror attacks of that kind seem to have died down a bit. I don't know whether COVID's killed them off or not. When when I say died down in the Western world, they have, um, so it almost feels like that moment has passed anyway. So maybe I could keep the bare bones of the story and make the threat different or something like that, you know? I just, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway, that's, that's all the, but in, that is a very long-winded chat about my two novel ideas, one of which I fully intend to finish. No, it was super, super fascinating. Number one, to talk to you about those things and to hear you talk about them. But number two, it's just, uh, 
it's not often that I ask someone a book idea and they were struggling about whether or not they should write that one. That's mm. that's that's cool to cool to hear. But I hundred percent agree with Rachel. Uh, to me, nothing is dead. And also, sometimes certain subjects seem real um, dicey at first, but when you get into it, you're like, oh, I'm still me in this subject, and yeah. I'm going to handle this like just fine, you know. Yeah. Um, but for when you haven't entered the room, it could be like, I don't belong in that room. I don't know about that room. But once you do enter the room, you're still you. So don't forget that, that like, you know, mm -hmm. if there's one medium where you, the, the, the artist cannot hide, it's the novel. Right. And so wherever you go, you're going to be you, which <laughs> is, which is a good person, which, which is a person that means well, a smart person. So chances are you would handle it right. Just keep all that in mind too. Well, thank you. So before we wrap things up, can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect in 2023 from Talking Scared? I, I, I can tell you things and I can also use this as a way to say to the audience, please tell me what you think and what you want, right? Because I've been doing the same thing now for two years and it's still working and it, it, it doesn't feel like I need to change things, but it's always nice to keep moving, you know? So for a start, the cool thing that happened is I'm now sort of working with a podcast promotion company um an ethical podcast promotion company um on a kind of informal basis because it's a it's it's basically a good friend of mine is know somebody who does this and they've got in touch very generously and they are trying to set me up with some promotions try and get me on the the front page of like apple podcasts or or stuff like that and if if that fails she at least has a real sense of what needs to happen to grow these things so there is somebody other than me at the wheel who can help make this better so so that's cool um but going into next year i really need to manage my my time my resources my mental health better so i will want to do this show until they won't let me anymore. But I am thinking I may change up a little bit how it works. Now that I've built enough of an audience that come along for the ride generally, and actually listeners, listening analytics on this episode will, will inform this. If people listen to this, then they're up for anything. Um, I, I'm thinking of doing like, you know, just interviews like standard, you know, two, maybe two, three times a, a month, but then once a month maybe doing something different where perhaps you know i get a couple of people on you know like you guys and say we talk about a book that we all love that we read when we were kids or that came out recently or whatever and we have a kind of different conversation about someone else's work you know and we just a bit of a book club type thing or i'm trying to set up a thing where i'm getting authors to come on and i'm going to do a, a, a sort of breakdown of it finally because I talk about it enough and we'll pick like a section and I'll talk to like Rich Chismar one week and then somebody else the week after about some other part. Just trying to break down so I don't have to read a book every single week because otherwise I'm going to burn out. Um, but the other thing I'm thinking of doing, and I'm interested in what people think of this, right? Because it's not set in stone, so no one panic. I am wondering whether to halve the amount of episodes I put out on Talking Scared and do one every other week, and then on the adjacent weeks to set up another podcast where I speak to people from other genres. And the reason I'm thinking of that is because there are lots and lots and lots of authors who are very interesting. Who I, I've, I've crowbarred into this from a horror perspective, but it's not really horror. And also, I don't really talk about horror 
all that much. I tend to talk about books as books. Someone comes on and talks about their book. It's quite rare that I actually say like, so how is this horror? Let's talk about how this compares to Dracula. You know, we just talk about their book. And it kind of feels like having a different avenue for a wider conversation would keep everything fresh. So this is open to the listeners. I am genuinely interested in whether you would listen if I rolled back Talking Scared a little and offered you some variety in, let's call it talking word for argument's sake, you know, talking to some other authors from from different realms of literature. I'm, I'm interested. I want to know what people think. Well, I think it's terrible that you're turning your back on the genre. <laughs> I'm terribly offended and, that you're leaving. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, <have to> <laughs> I think that's a great idea, man. I think anything that keeps what you're doing like uh, fresh and, and elastic and stretching. You know, one thing I always think about with books is when I, if I have an idea and I'm like, that's unlike me. And then I say to myself, once you do it, it's like you. Mm. So why not do it? And then you've stretched. And now, now this is. And and even if you only do it once, whatever it is. So yeah, to me that that sounds like somebody who's who's stretching. And yeah, and the other thing is like very quickly, top of your head, Josh. Right, this is you're not being held to account here. Same to you, Rachel. What are your three favorite books that come to mind of all time? Yeah, yeah, three books that you love. Moby Dick. Yeah. Perfume. Yeah. God is perfume good. Oh my God. Uh, the Exorcist. I love those three books. Okay, Rachel. Uh. Most recently, Paul Bearer's Club. And then um, The Bell Jar. And then Plain Bad Heroin. Right. So three of the books that were mentioned, right, could be on this show. Yeah? But some of the books that you mentioned wouldn't be on this show. You are both ardent horror fans. You are scholars of the genre, right? But half of the books you really love aren't horror, nominally. Yeah, so I think we we run the risk of siloing ourselves as readers a little bit in this culture. This is a horror podcast, you know. So I think, I hope that my listeners would want to hear me talk to Kazuo Ishiguru or or David Mitchell or, you know, do you know what I mean? I think there's there's a lot of scope for this. I, I, I don't want it, I don't want by trying to fixate on horror to kill it. I want to keep it fresh, like you said, you know. So I'm just interested in what people people think, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm open to all suggestions. But there will always be, there will always be a talking scared. How can people give you their feedback via email, via Twitter? Yeah, it, it all goes in the afterword. But yeah, just tweet me, email me, talkingscaredpod at gmail.com. Tweet me. If you're on Patreon, you know, message on there. Whatever. I'm just, I'm just interested. Okay, cool. So I'm going to start wrapping mm-hmm. things up. Before I do that, I want to say as a fan of the show, I appreciate all the hard work that you put into it. And I know my fellow listeners will agree. And um, shouting out all of the incredible guests that you've had on. You've got a great roster and I've enjoyed listening to everybody. So if there are any guests listening, Josh throw you in there thank you and thank you to neil for reading and for having these conversations with us talking scared with us and so are you squirming in your seat neil was that torturous i don't don't like it really (laughs) i know i know take the compliment take it so 
I'm going to wrap up the way you always wrap up, which is can you recommend a book? And then we'll go there and then we'll go, you know what, you know what we're ending with. Um, right. So I can recommend a book. I'm going to recommend two books because it's my fucking show and I'll do what I want. Um, the first book to recommend for me, the greatest ghost story ever written, The Little Stranger by Sarah Waters. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. And it doesn't get talked about enough. And Sarah Waters doesn't get talked about enough. Um, have, you, have you two read this? I haven't. No. No, but I'm like Googling it like right as we're have, talking. Have you read The Fingersmith? That's the, her famous book. Mm-mm. Right. Okay. Sarah Waters, she she writes, well, I suppose it's queer fiction, but it, it, it never really, it's never really considered that way because the story is so good that the issues become almost secondary. Um, she, it, it, she writes historical fiction generally with a gothic bent, um, often overtures of the supernatural. But in The Little Stranger, she went full on kind of Edwardian ghost story, although it's set a little later than that, in Hundreds Hall. And it's, a, well, it's about a haunted house. And it's narrated by this doctor. You think he's the protagonist or you think he's the hero. And he could be, but there is a way to interpret that story in which the ghost and the horror and the, the fear of the ghost of the little stranger is entirely secondary to the kind of patriarchal microaggressions that are really going on. And it, it's, a, it's this incredible example of narrative as a form of opp- oppression and control. Like the way he narrativizes the, his first person perspective is this box in which everyone must fit and be manipulated like a doll's house. And that's made it sound very, very wanky and very academic. And it's not. It's just a rollicking good ghost story. But it's got all these like genius narrative layers. And it's just fantastic. And it's the perfect book to read. In December, if you've got like two days over Christmas to sit and put your feet up and just get into this big doorstop of a ghost story. Wonderful. That sounds amazing. Like, okay, I'm on it. Um, And the other one I'm going to mention, which is not horror um, at all, but it's a book I was talking about today, which is why it's come to mind. And I don't know about you, Rachel, but I think you would love this book, Josh. It's called Shotgun Love Songs by Nicholas Butler. Uh, came out about 10 years ago. And you know the singer Chris Stapleton? Yes. I don't know if I do. If you, if, well, he's a really cool, like, bluesy country and western singer. And it, basically, it, it's a Chris Stapleton song in novel form. It's about these five friends in this small town, and one's a breakout singer-songwriter who's very troubled. And it's these each chapter is a kind of vignette from their life. And it's just this poetic, beautiful look at, male friendship and manhood but just the writing is just stunning it's just beautiful and it transports you and i i just I love, love it i love when i'm in a book and realize and it doesn't happen that often but when i'm in a book and realizing that at some point the writing is just so wonderful i mean it could be about anything and, it, and it's almost like it's almost like listening to somebody who's like plays the guitar not not like technically better than anyone else but just like in such an awesome way or something like that yeah. and some books get you there like F. Scott Fitzgerald gets me there, Virginia Woolf, uh, Truman Capote, uh, Nabokov, which is crazy because English was his second language. Mm-hmm. Um, and in just such fluidity, it's like a synchronized swimmer. It's like, I don't care what this book's even about. I just want to watch them write. 
Yeah, exactly. So that's my little <laughs> like additional one. But if you want a good scary book this Christmas, you cannot do better than The Little Stranger. Awesome. Great one. Thanks. Okay, Neil. Yeah. I have to ask, mm. what truly scares <laughs> you? Oh, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've thought what my answer to this question would be. And every time it becomes this kind of painfully existential sort of peer into the abyss. <laughs> um, but if, if I had to come down to one, the only way I can describe it is this. The thing that truly terrifies me is the thing that cannot be stopped. So I can give you a million manifestations of that, right? I have this real overwhelming phobia of rabies, right? Because Same. rabies... Right, but there is no rabies in my country, Rachel. The other day I got I got I got licked by a dog in Denmark, right? One of the most hygienic, medicinally secure places in the world, and I was worried I had rabies because the the thing about it that disease is that once it starts, it can't be stopped. Yeah? Cancer in some cases can be stopped, you know, but but rabies can't. And there are other things like that. There are other things that once they happen to you, the the end is nigh, regardless of what you do. Ew. So it's so I'm not saying rabies. That's just the first example that came to mind. I'm saying this this process by which you can't do anything. And I think it comes down to the fact that I'm a control freak. Um and things that can't be solved, being in the position where the end result is just, you're done. You've just got to wait now. That that terrifies me. That really, really frightens me. That's a really good good answer. <laughs> anything, I, anything I can face and fight, I'm okay with. Ooh. But, yeah, but not things I can't. It's a great answer. Right. So I'm going to... Well, I, the- I, well, hold on. I, I wanted to say before we go to the same, uh, to, to echo something of what Rachel said before, like, thank you for all you're doing and all this. And this was awesome um, to... To turn the turn the microphones around, um, it was just it's cool, and I didn't. It's like a meta idea in a way, and it just it turned into like just an awesome. Of course, it turned into an awesome conversation with you two and getting to know you better in this way, Neil. Uh, thanks for everything you're doing, and thank you for having and, and thanks for asking Rachel and I to do this. No, well, you were my first kind of thoughts for this because. Um, I don't know whether, you, whether you've heard this, Josh, but <laughs> I often joke. I'm often like, oh, yeah, my friend Josh Malloman. <laughs> I, um, We're friends, yeah. darling. And, uh, and, yeah, and, and Rachel, you've been just a supporter from the start. And like, it's weird. Like, I speak to a lot of people, and I, have, I get on great with a lot of people, but there are some people that I just get a real immediate affinity with. You know, there's, there's you guys. There's, there's Nat Cassidy. You know, there's Brian McCauley. There are, you know, Paul Tremblay, John Langan, people who I get this immediate sense of who they are and where they're coming from. And, and we just kind of see eye to eye and, and it, it just flows. So just thank you. You asked at the start, Rachel, are you my favorite guest? Well, yes, you are. There are a few others who are in the same position. But yeah, <laughs> there is a small gaggle of people who are my favorite guests and you are very much in that. So so thanks for thanks for helping out these last two years. It's been amazing. And uh and, and yeah, and I'm going to say it. Thanks for talking scared. I'm laughing and cringing that this episode is so long. 
I put such effort into cutting down the length of other episodes, like literally editing the words of important writers who've written great books to make sure it comes in consistently around the hour mark. And then, when I'm in the chair, fuck it, let's make a 90-minute special. <laughs> um, I do hope you enjoyed this. We, we didn't actually dwell all that long on horror and stuff. It was actually quite wide-ranging, and I... You know, I hope you feel you got to know me a little, if you even wanted to. The download stats will make for nerve-wracking reading this week. (laughs) But I won't carry on with the self-deprecation too much, because it gets a little disingenuous, even for a Brit. I really enjoyed being asked questions by Rachel and Josh, and I'm I'm properly grateful that they gave their time with, with nothing to gain or promote. It's It's really kind, and I will mention that Josh has got a phenomenally interesting project in the works, kind of documenting the writing of his new book. I I won't say more than that, because I'm not sure if I should, nor do I know the details, but he's being typically creatively groundbreaking and interesting in that very Malaman way. And since we recorded this, Rachel has announced her next book will be out in September 23. It's called Black Sheep, and it's about a cult. And and she told me it features her going hard at horror. So that's something to get excited about nice and early. Off the back of this, I think I'll put out an AMA or something to complement these questions with any that you may have. Maybe you want more info on my reading tastes, on my thoughts on certain books specifically, or maybe you want to query something I said I'll do kind of ask me anything on one form of social media or another. I I don't know which yet, maybe all of them. But to be safe, you can find me on either Twitter, Instagram or TikTok at TalkScaredPod. And if you want to give me any deeper feedback or ask anything or whatever, you can email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. In particular... Please do let me know what you think about the potential for me running a second podcast focused less on specific genre. Now, don't feel this is me turning my back on horror. It will always be my first and greatest and most abiding love. But considering how often these episodes just diverge from any kind of genre-specific question, it does feel like we're leaving a lot of stuff on the table. There's a lot of scope to widen the net. And if I do, I want you guys to come with me. So yeah, let me know. It won't be for months if it does happen. I I don't know. But get in touch on socials or via email and tell me what you actually think. There's also the Patreon. Don't forget, that's kind of route one to me. Plus you get loads of bonus stuff, bonus episodes, more peaks behind the curtain, blah, 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 blah. Um, Anyone who subscribes is a massive help to this show, and you can do that for a few dollars, a few pounds a month at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. Thank you very much to all who have supported the show this year and anyone who's going to support it next year. You guys are massively appreciated. Last thing before I go. Christmas is coming, and I know it can be the most wonderful time of the year, but it can also be hard. And over the next week or so, I'll be paying particular attention to my social media and emails. And if you just need someone to talk to, to say hi, to tell you a joke, to tell you that you matter, 
and that things are or will be okay. I'm available. I can't promise to respond immediately. I'm just one man. But I'm here and I will get back to you. The Talking Scared family, me, my wife, Ted, the listeners, we can be your family if you need one over the next few days. So please, if you need, reach out. Lots of love to everyone, whether you bother with this tinsel drape carnival or not. I'm back next week with the now annual State of the Horror Nation overview. Me, Emily Hughes and Janelle Jansen picking the books we loved and the ones we can't wait to read. It's another mega two-hour marathon, which is good if your mad gran or your racist uncle are starting to wear on your nerves a little bit. Just sail away into a nicer kind of horror. Until then, be merry, be bright, eat what you want, watch and read what you want, sleep in, hug someone you love, have a very, very nice time. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.